0: Hi Siren, how are you?
1: Oh, there we go, I'm sorry. Um, I just turned on my microphone. It took me like two minutes. Hi. Um, Hi. How
0: are you doing?
1: Good, how are you?
0: Good, good, thank you
1: so are we starting in about five minutes or yeah
0: so? yeah we still have five minutes so. all
1: right yeah i'm here i just need to run down and grab oh yeah don't worry i'll be back in yep. a sec yeah all right yeah speak soon <clears throat> Okay, I'm here.
0: Hey, sorry, I had to navigate back to the No, no, it's okay. And thanks for sending me
1: the other talk. It's um, I need to keep an eye on these things. It's really good. Oh, yeah, sure. Thank and you. So can you, you can record it and then have it available after?
0: Yeah, exactly. um so usually i send a link to the recording
1: Uh
0: and if you want to also have the raw audio file let me know then i'll send it to you too
1: i mean it's okay but yeah no it's good to have a at least for things you cannot catch up live it's good to be able to listen
0: yeah so um we have also a spotify and youtube account where I upload things for people that don't have like um Yeah, and then also it started kind of what like young scientists they like a few asked me, Oh, do you embed the DOI? Does it do anything to adult metric score? I see. So I started embedding the.
1: Uh huh. Well, that's very good of you.
0: Yeah, so I don't edit it, however. Mm last time i think i will edit the room from the other day because okay. we opened it up very early to figure out like videos and stuff and oh, i see yeah 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 so that will be a kind of boring but hi victoria yeah. I meet mean, sarin am i saying your name right please say your it's name. um
1: it's jaron it's the season... oh, jaren. <laughs>
2: okay Sorry. well good morning katarina good morning jaren
1: welcome hi to... very nice to meet you
2: yeah thank you likewise happy to be here and excited to hear what you have to share
1: (laughs) hopefully it'll live up to your expectations it's going to be very informal sorry oh
2: please don't apologize for being here giving us this gift of of your time and everything you're about to share yeah no i just yeah
1: it's gonna be a bit informal we love
2: informal this is we're here to share (laughs) what
1: you have to share with as many people who want to come and listen yeah and i just figured i can get some questions from you guys and then we can have it as almost like a big group discussion um so i'm very happy to have questions as i talk or afterwards whatever suits you
0: yeah that's perfect thank you and again thank you for doing this making that count and on the weekend
1: (laughs) (laughs) no it's okay i mean saturdays are pretty chill so i had a nice long walk on the beach and it's for evening for me, so it feels like a nice way to close the day off.
0: Oh, nice! That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I walked in the park here yeah. in the city, but and went to the farmers market. That's why. Ah, I- nice. <laughs> so yeah. Oh yeah, I think we we can slowly start. Um, I know okay. people will keep coming in um but we'll start with introductions and so on first and questions so people won't miss too much i think from the presentation sure okay so welcome everyone to science society and of course welcome a special welcome to you jaren um we are so glad you're here and let me give a short introduction so people get to know you a little bit jaren um is an archaeologist Archaeologist uh, and specializes in the study of carbonized plant macro remains, which means woods, charcoal, seeds, tubers, and so on. And she is especially interested in working on the range of hunter-gatherer and early uh, farming sites in southwest Asia and eastern Mediterranean. And her work focuses on exploring the complex two-way relationship between people, climate and the environment and how these are manifested in uh, the planned use practices of prehistoric societies. Uh, She grew up in Turkey and she studied in the US, uh, Canada and the UK and she has been working in liverpool since she finished her PhD in 2015 and now she's actually getting ready to move to portugal in the new year wow wonderful i'm
1: from portugal where where (laughs) oh nice so i'm going to faro algarve
0: Oh, that's so beautiful! And Victoria, she's Portuguese now too. Oh. I, I hope that was okay, Victoria, to share that. So. It's great. <laughs> yeah.
1: well, come she and visit. You family. know.
0: Okay. <laughs> careful,
2: careful, Karen. I do, no, no, no Karen. it's it's Karen. okay. Yeah. Is
1: that what you said? Um, the Karen, it's Karen. yeah, it's like a J. Um, but Karen. Well, come and okay, visit. Karen. Yeah. I got it. Okay.
2: Yeah, careful. We may actually come.
1: That's fine. Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I am looking at six months of fieldwork from starting in May, I think. Um, so I'm not going to be there in any of the good months. So. <laughs> but
0: winter in Algarve is good. A lot of people from the Probably, UK yeah. spend their winter months in, in Algarve. That's what I heard, yeah. And spring is very pretty, like uh it's actually green. Like the rest of oh, the yeah, year it's yeah. pretty dry, so it's not really green anymore. Oh. No, I'm
1: um, I'm really And then you have to
0: the, the yeah. orange season. Please <gasps> eat the fresh orange <laughs> I the Just go to a local farm, like a tiny one when you drive through the you know, uh-huh. to the interior and, and go and pick oranges like or yes. buy oranges. It's they are so good. You never tasted oranges. Well, you grew up in Turkey. Maybe,
1: <laughs> well, we did. <laughs> so my my gran had orange trees in her garden. So I'm uh, and tangerines. So I'm I am missing those, and I'm looking forward to the possibility of being able to pick tangerines or oranges myself. Um, in the next wonderful. six years anyway
0: oh so you're going to stay yeah. six years oh my
1: god well it's a i know so it's a six-year postdoc oh, um, wow. and there is the possibility of tenure but we see we see oh that's so wonderful these things are well yeah.
0: we, we definitely know it feels come and like visit
1: <laughs> yeah there's a lot of time so <laughs> come
0: <laughs> that's so great i'm so happy
1: um, no, no, I'm I'm super excited. It's been a few years of of rejections, applications, and all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, it's it's exciting, and and Portugal no less. So yeah,
0: yeah, that's <clears> wonderful. <throat> I'm so glad. And now people <laughs> the people usually are quite nice, so you know.
1: All right. Yeah. Love. No, I I imagine it's gonna be it's gonna be good. Um, so sort and of, around yeah. Faro
0: is a lot of international people too.
1: That's what I was told, and uh, yeah. the landscape looks really pretty. There's fish markets everywhere, so I'm sold. And the know. smell,
0: there's a very specific smell in Algarve right when you land with the plane. <laughs> I I guess you land in Far Faro. Yeah, yes. it's it's a it's Faro. It's airport. right. Well, in the winter, I don't know, but you know the the different tiny plants that grow around oh, there like a, a very specific yeah specific smell in that region nice. so, so it must be a nice it. yeah cool. <laughs> anyway <laughs>
1: that's nice
0: yeah well okay i'll hand over um the mic to victoria to to do the interview thank you for that all attention. right yeah <laughs>
2: Thank you Katharina. and uh, yeah this is this is really exciting and we have a lot of people here to hear you such a diverse um, group of audience as well we have a baker and science friends and and um, just really happy to welcome you and and you reminded me I'm originally from California and I'm in Oregon right now so I'm still almost oh, from California <laughs> and and what you mentioned about the oranges and the lemons, there is nothing like that. Like getting it from your own tree. My grandma also had orange and lemon trees, and tangerine and kumquat, and yeah. So <laughs> yeah, moving moving and moving along back into the room. Um, so somewhere along our lives, we develop our affinities and interests, and it would be interesting to hear about when you felt drawn toward an interest in science if you can do maybe a quick Uh, memory scan back in your life yeah thank you
1: i think it's so. for me it started when i was very little um i just they would ask me i guess towards the end of primary school in turkey things are very sort of directed you have to take exams at the end of primary school exams at the end of middle school and exams at the end of high school so i remember being asked uh, in primary school what i wanted to do and i basically kept saying i want to be a scientist and they'd say but which field that i said well, i want to be a scientist i don't really care i just i want to find something to investigate and i want to spend the rest of my life thinking about weird things um and they weren't really terribly happy with my answer i think because um i was a straight a student but i it was just i just didn't really see the point of taking exams so for me it was always um, a way to engage my creativity science was was a way to to think about the world in different ways Um, so i guess i could have gone into different fields but i ended up in archaeology as a sort of through the back door, almost. I um, I took some anthropology elective courses when I was doing my undergrad, um, and I got really interested in in ethnomedicine and ethnobotany. Um, and then I thought, well, can I actually look at some prehistoric stuff? Um, I'd always been interested in hunter gatherers, and this period of transition to early farming. So yeah, it was. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. <laughs> I just always wanted to do science. I guess
2: absolutely, it answers my my question and and what I was curious about, and it's it's um, specific to you and and your answer, and I'm I'm curious if growing up in Turkey or where you grew up, there was the history around you that may have motivated or inspired you to to um, focus on what you had mentioned about ethnobotany and 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 anthropology at all
1: I think to some extent, so I grew up being completely clueless about archaeology um i I was not really well versed in it i did, i didn't even i didn't i do not have an interest in ruins or ancient sites to be perfectly honest with you um, but I always was interested in um, wild plants, i guess because my um my mother and my grandmother were really into it um so and food was a big part of of my growing up so I I guess I um I read about today about recipe books and and food history etc so maybe food was what got me more interested in the archaeological and anthropological stuff
2: right that's what I was I was wondering if the foods that you grew up around and maybe Familial interest in food and things that you were, that you were exposed to, had guided that at all, and, and it does sound that way.
1: Yeah, it's, I just, I think it's mainly food. I mean, I call my brother now and we talk about food. It's it's, um, yeah. We try to talk about other stuff happening in the world, and then the conversation inevitably circle back to food and what we're gonna cook or what we're gonna eat or,
2: yeah. Well, if you listen to any of the replays from these rooms, you'll notice that <laughs> we also. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're just into food, yeah. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yes, what's more fun? So thank you, Jiren. And and then um, also how wonderful that you were able to feel strong in your interest and you knew where you wanted to take yourself. I, I think that's always noteworthy because you know, we can get swayed by outside influences and, you know, external pressures to not listen to a voice that that we know is there. So, hooray for you. It's a beautiful thing to hear.
3: Thank you.
1: It's great, mm, it's I mean, it's, yeah, there's other ways to describe it, but I guess, you know, it's one way to see it is the positive. The other way is just to see, well, you're stubborn as a goat. So, um, I'll take that. That the, the nice way. Of yeah, no, it. <laughs> no.
2: I think both ways are good because it's you know um, language matters the words we use, mm-hmm. and you could say that somebody was stubborn, and you could also say that they that they were determined. So yeah. often, um, girls are we get the other you know we get the other word like bossy <laughs> instead of assertive, right? So yeah. absolutely, you know, you have to choose the positive because life's hard enough and and so it's yeah mm -hmm. and it's and also i think it speaks to how important it is to listen to children because you have that internal wisdom and and Mm -hmm. so um at this point i i would like to just hand you the mic and invite you to go excuse me go into your discussion and i know that you had also been very welcoming and mentioned that you were wanting to have it become an informal discussion. So at any point, we're here to moderate that and you know, let you know if there are questions in the chat or bring friends up who may want to ask questions. So thank you, Jen, and the mic is yours.
1: Thank you. So um, it's do I have to have my chat open anywhere? Or will I just see something? No ping on the it's, screen. Oh,
2: go ahead, Katarina. Did you want to answer?
0: Oh, yeah, no, uh, no, you don't have to. So everyone accesses the uh, file by themselves and uh, we'll monitor the chat for you. So don't worry about it.
1: Wow, you guys are great. Thank you. Okay, so um, I guess everybody has a copy of the PDF. And I did put numbers inside a rubber ducky just to help things um, along. And I'm still on my introduction slide at the minute um so thank you so much for inviting me and for the lovely introductions and um quite insightful questions to be perfectly honest i wasn't expecting to be dissected quite before i start talking so it was a nice change um so today i want to take this opportunity to to give you a sort of informal talk and and some of the background story but some of the insights on my um, on the recent article that was published starting with cooking in caves which was a title that was actually modified from my original submission by the lovely people in antiquity who had better insight and said well actually you want to say what you're doing um, in your title so um and i'll also touch a little bit on plant use in the later paleolithic in the regions i work on uh, which as um, katarina said earlier focuses on Southwest Asia and Eastern Mediterranean and a bunch of sites that are earlier hunter gather sites, but also slightly later and towards the, the advent and, and initial stages of farming. So on page two, um, I give you a very brief introduction on the kinds of plant remains that I study. Um, these are carbonized plant remains and they're often preserved as a result of contact with hot heat Um, This can be slightly indirect heat as well, but we tend to get um, just exposure to fire and incomplete combustion. So generally um, that they need to stay in temperature ranges below 500 Celsius or thereabouts. Um, And you can get anywhere between 180 to 200 Celsius that is exposed for a while and just preserved. Um, So we don't get all the plants that are used at a site and they tend to degrade and decay, um, we just get a snapshot and a residue of what remains, which is important to remember, I guess, for for any kind of evaluation of archeological plant remains. Um, And in page three, I show you some of the ways in which they can tend to be preserved at sites. Um, So they can be found in sediments that are direct use areas like hearths or or stoves or that sort of fire feature. Or they can also be part of general deposits um, that are thrown into middens. So midden is, I guess, an archaeological way and a fancy way of saying these are just areas of rubbish. Um, And we get a lot of our plant remains from such deposits because people use fires and cooking and that sort of thing almost on a daily basis um, and more often in many cases. And then they clean up and they throw things into a designated area. And this happens even in cave sites. It happens in large complex occupations that will have rubbish accumulated by multiple families or groups being thrown into the same area. And it's a practice that has very um, deep history. So anyway, we get plant remains from such contexts Um, on page four. I give you a sort of very graphical demonstration of how we retrieve these plant remains from general soils that we excavate in archeological sites, which is that we use the fantastic power of water to separate the plant remains that have lower density um, so that they float to the top as the soil dissolves. And then we keep the water flowing and just catch them in a mesh. Um, And then they get dried and they get sent to me in the lab Um, And then I never know what exactly I'm going to find until I start looking at things. So I hope that was a decent introduction into the materials that I study and some of the materials that are reported in the article. Um, On page five I just give you a very, I notice now, um, a map with very small letters and I apologize, um, showing some of the regions that I work on um, and I guess the term Fertile Crescent might be familiar to people who may have written, read about um, origins of agriculture, um, but I this is my neck of the woods. I study things from the Northern Zagros, from Southeast and Eastern Anatolia. Um, I've done some work on the Levant in the past and, and in Central Anatolia and the West, um, and also from the Eastern Mediterranean, specifically the Aegean Basin. So it's a, a broad region that has evidence of a lot of hunter gatherer sites, but also is the area where we've had a lot of research done in origins of plant and animal domestication, um, as well as evidence for the earliest farming sites that we see some of them with fantastic monumental architecture and so on. So hopefully it orients you a little bit. Um, Okay, so Going into the stuff I report on on the paper, and I think I forgot to add the Frangti Cave, so I apologize. Um, so Shandadar Cave um, on page six is um, now being re-excavated since 2015-16. Um, it was an old excavation done by Ralph Solecki back in the day, um, which is a similar story with the materials that we studied from Frangti Cave, which is in the Aegean, um, it was a result of excavations that was done in the 60s and 70s. So there is some legacy data here, and legacy materials that had not been fully studied, um, and then sites being revisited, which for me was quite exciting, because um, I could go back and revisit some of the theories that had been put forward for hunter-gatherers in these sites. <clears throat> So on page six, I have some example, it's on page seven, sorry, um, some examples of these food remains, the burnt carbonized aggregates that I reported from both sites. Um, so just in case you wanted to see what they look like under low power magnification without the fancy visuals of the scanning electron microscope, they essentially look like um, crumbs that you would see at the bottom of your toaster If you were to take them out and look at them with a magnifying glass, they are um, aggregated lumps that contain a lot of plant cells and tissue. Um, Often you can see some bits of seeds that are sticking out, but not necessarily any greater detail. So what we did was, and this was something I was doing, um, sorry, I'm on page eight and then which has more examples of these burnt remains um, and on page nine now so what I started doing was uh, and this was part of my routine analysis um, I started separating out these burnt aggregates um, or charred lumps if you want to call them something that you can relate to um, or crumbs <clears throat> I started separating them out for investigation, investigating later um, while doing the more routine identification of seeds, tubers and wood charcoal which is a study on its own that will hopefully come out in the next year um, but then I had some colleagues who had been doing work on similar remains from Neolithic sites in central Anatolia which one of them is Çatalhög, the other person who was then at the time, getting ready to publish her results was Amaya Rans, who reported on the possible bread remains from Shebeka in Jordan, that dates to about 14,000 years ago. Um, and I, I remember thinking, well, I should probably look at what these guys have inside just to figure out if they are food or if they're something else. Um, and I started seeing quite a lot of remains of pulses in many of the fragments that I've got and at the time i wasn't entirely sure what was going on but all we could see were um, mashed up pieces of plants i'm on page 10 now and quite a lot of fragments of things that come from the seed coat layer of pulses as well as some of the grasses Um, there's potentially some fragments of tubers in here as well that we couldn't quite identify because they're not in terribly great state, and hopefully there's a few other fragments that we can study in the future that will allow us to see what's in them. But I guess the way I tried to frame this article was to, to include both sites that I could find that I found similar evidence in. Um, and and on page eleven you can see, and these are figures from the article. Um, sorry, there's nothing terribly fancy. Um, we were starting to get a range of species that were in the wild vetch family um, and quite a lot of them for example the Vicia villia, which is bitter wedge um, as the name denotes is quite bitter and often has to be processed for consumption and we have evidence for its consumption all the way from <clears throat> the epipaleolithic to the neolithic to um, later periods and even in classical greece and um, later occupations so and we even have some textual evidence that they were consuming such things a similar situation is with the lathyrus, which is um, relatives of the grass pea um, it's not always consumed very often but the greeks have a dish that they make called fava which is not weighed with vichia fava quite confusingly, but it's made with one of the small latherous species. Um, And it similarly requires um, processing and leaching to be made edible so that you don't get a tummy ache. So we were then also finding in the Neanderthal occupation on page 12, you'll see the same figure from the article, um, mixtures of pulses that are not terribly happy to be preserved to be perfectly honest they're not very well preserved um, and some grasses that probably come from a range of wild grasses um and they're, they're in a just sort of lumpy mashed mixed situation and we could see with quite a lot of these um if you zoom in to panel c you'll see that there's um, areas where the starches have actually um Expanded and stuck together and, and started forming more gelatinized mixtures, which to us suggested that they were possibly um, soaked potentially before mashing. And with fragments such as the one from Frank the Cave that is on page t- 10, um, you can see that there are old breakages in the seed. So if you look at panel B of page 10, You'll see there there is a seed fragment more or less in the center of the figure, the panel um, that has an old break, which is um, a break that happened before it got carbonized. And it has these sort of smooth edges to it, which tends to suggest that it was wet or um, had potentially high moisture content before it got charred, um, all of which is sort of suggesting that they were soaked and then mashed um and then carbonized either accidentally um as a result of um just being thrown into a fire while things were being prepared or they're just leftovers or um, somebody just dropped a crumb as they were eating things Um, we also go into a bit of detail in the article about why we think these are not um, fecal remains um, they tend so when we get dung herbivore or omnivore, they tend to be slightly more crumbly if that makes sense, especially if they have been carbonized. Um, whereas I think you can see on the examples I included on um, seven and eight on pages um, that these are sort of more wholesome, so to speak, almost like food items that have been carbonized. And uh, we don't necessarily have evidence of digestion. Um, we don't get the corpus, the the um, spherolites that you tend to get preserved, especially if it is low temperature carbonization, which these tend to, um, well, these look like because we wouldn't get seed coat preservation if they had been charred at higher temperatures. So. We go through some of the the literature, et cetera. So if you've got any questions on those, I'm happy to talk about it, but there's also links, I think, in the article and in some of the other stuff that address these issues in much greater detail. Okay, so um, I guess this is what I have to say about the findings. Um, And on page 13, I start to sort of go into detail about how we contextualized all of this information, because I wanted to do something that was going beyond just saying, okay, well, we found pulses, and these are the species of the pulses that were eaten during the Musterian, during the Baradostian, and then during the later Paleolithic in the Epigravettian in Francie Cave. Um, so we started looking at evidence for plant use elsewhere, Um, And we know that there is bits and pieces of an increasing amount of evidence on um, later Paleolithic or even earlier periods of plant use. Um, One of these comes from uh, a site that was reported in Mozambique that seems to have evidence for um, grinding and mashing of wild grass seeds. And this is evidence that is found on stone tools. And I'll go into why I specify where the evidence goes in, comes from in a little while. Um, and then we had evidence from a site called Kibara Cave, which is in the Levant. That dates to about sixty to 70,000 years ago. And is, again, a Musterian occupation, um, quite similar to the Musterian levels at Shanidar Cave. And there they found carbonized seeds of... Um, legumes some of them are relatives of the wild lentils um, wild grasses quite a lot of wild pistachio seeds um, which is called terebinth in many parts of the near east and a lot more things that they weren't quite sure if all of them were eaten or not so that was on page 14 sorry um and then on page 15 i've got a site that is called Grotta Pagliacci. This is the, the cave site of Pagliacci from the south of Italy, um, where they found, again, on stone tools, evidence for um, of starch grains that come from grasses, many of which are showing um, evidence of not just grinding, but also potentially soaking and cooking. <clears throat> and then on page 16, There's some um, examples of in-situ hearths or little roasting areas that they probably was lined with clay and was was likely used to roast wild grasses. Um, And they didn't necessarily find more evidence of things like starch or seeds, but they could see quite a lot of phytoliths, which phytoliths are the, cell impressions of grasses mostly or grassy parts of plants that are preserved by the cell absorbing silica and then as the plant rots away you're left behind with the phytolith impression which is essentially um, not going to degrade it's pretty cool Um, So, and then, as I said earlier, um, one of my colleagues, Amaya Aranz-Otegu, was um, what published her study on these similar food remains from the site of Shubeka One in Jordan, which dates to about 14,400, 500 years ago, um, and contains evidence of cooked items that, can, that have tubers, um, various grass seeds in them, quite a lot of other wild plant foods. Some of them um, could have been mustards. So there's um, there growing evidence as we come towards the, um, the later periods. Um, and then we did on page 18, um, a study that was from an epipaleolithic site in the Northwest Zagros, And on page 19 you'll see our elaborate um, recovery (laughs) system sorry Um, and then on page 20 the plant remains that we found included um, quite a lot of wild almond nutshell Um, very little evidence of wild pistachio but um, it's possible that we will find some things in other sites Um, tuber fragments Which mostly come from small wild plants and um, wild, again, wetch and grass pea seeds, um, wild barley and other wild grasses that were all deposited in this rock shelter that um, was potentially not occupied all the time, um, but it was inhabited by hunter gatherers that come later than the occupation at Shandidar Cave, but still considerably earlier than the start of farming. Um, On page 21, I try to summarize some of the evidence that we have for quite a lot of these sites that are in the Near East and um, in the Eastern Mediterranean. So I have a lot of site names there on a table. Um, This is so that if you want to look anything up, It should allow you to find the sites and the um, evidence that it points to. Um, I have a row at the bottom that says which region it comes from, so Southern Levant, Northern Levant, Zagros, etc. The row above that has the chronological horizon as we know it at present, so Middle Paleolithic, or Upper Paleolithic, or Epipaleolithic, and so on. Um, And what we see in the region-wide use of plants is that there's a great reliance on wild almond and wild pistachio, which is the two um, plants that are at the top two rows. So amygdalus and pistachio are wild almond and wild pistachio, um, followed by wild legumes, so bitter wedges or grass pea and wild lentils and other, a range of other legumes that we know are relied on. Um, in contrast, it doesn't look like there's as much use of grasses, which is highlighted in partially in the green. So these include um, hordeum, which is wild barley, avena, which is wild oat, and then other grasses. Um, there's again, very little reliance on things like wild oak acorns, which is Quercus, and um, juniper berries, which is juniperous. So it looks like across this broad region that I showed you the map of, which includes the Fertile Crescent and all the way up to um, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Aegean, there is a very long-term tradition and um, deep reliance on these groups of plants that have very strong tastes. So that is wild almond, pistachio, and quite a lot of the wild legumes. Um, So we started looking at our data with this light of seeing quite a lot of the Paleolithic plant staples that we're seeing have distinct tastes. Um, They also require multiple steps and complex processing sequences, which is a fancy way of saying they all require culinary intervention or cuisines or, or cooking technologies to make them edible and prepare foodstuffs that are using them. Um, Quite a lot of them, especially the oily nuts, wild almonds and pistachios, may have been used in preparations that involve meat, fish or other sorts of proteins um, for flavoring various things or for processing other things to preserve them so that they last longer. And until this point, or I guess up to the early 2000s, quite a lot of the debate on um, later Paleolithic diet and hunter-gathering practices focused on calorie gain that we were evaluating past hunter-gatherers in, um, in a way to, to characterize almost their diets through how much effort they had to put into what they had to gather and how much effort they had to put into to prepare them seeing them in a way that was not necessarily acknowledging that there could have been culinary traditions or there could have been methods and and techniques of preparing foods um, with specific preferences for flavor. So my last slide is 22 and I'm almost here, I think. Um, I just want to take this opportunity. I don't have an acknowledgement slide, sorry. Um, I think the article and various other things I've written give um, the acknowledgements that would take pages and pages to list out in quite detail. So if you're curious, please click and and read. Um, But I want to take this opportunity, as it is a more broad science um, audience, to tell you why we do all of this stuff. And, and our main aim, I guess, and my main aim is to understand resource use, the way we see how people choose the foods that they want to eat from supermarkets or things they want to collect out in the wild, in the landscape today. Um, we want to understand how people actually use these resources and what kind of choices they made and what kind of impact those choices had on the environment. So in a way... Um, we also want to understand changes in diet and the use of the environment that and and various other details on adaptation to different environments in with this sort of broad perspective in mind of what people ate, why they ate them, and what kind of impact it had on our own adaptation and evolution in the broad scheme of things what kind of impact it had on the nature that we actually inhabited, the socialized landscapes that um, humans and our ancestors have occupied for a very long time. Because the use of plants has an impact on the plants that tend to thrive around our settlements. The protection or management of various resources has has an ecological impact on us and other animals that rely on these resources. So I guess it beyond food and beyond other things, we want to understand the complexities of these choices and resources practices in the past. Um, I think that's all I've got to say. So if you've got any questions, oh, sorry, I may have missed some. Oh, you're fine.
0: Um, Thank you so much for this wonderful talk um this is really so interesting and also seeing the list of uh different types of um plants and where they come from uh this is really i was really fascinated to realize when i read um the article about your work and then later the, the paper um like yeah that you could figure out like if they use this, the has to have more elaborate steps, and and you know, gaining this insight, like this broader insight from those findings, that's really so, uh, yeah, so interesting and fascinating. So thank you for sharing that with us. And I wanna um give I know Rose raised her hand a while ago, so I wanted to give her opportunity to ask uh, first. Rose, please go ahead.
4: Oh, uh, so I just wanted to ask how it correlates with the uh, post mortem remains that we sometimes find, and what we look into the stomachs, etc. And w- what I'd really like to understand is how did they arrive at figuring out uh, we can eat this, we can't eat this, and did some of them die along the way? And can we, when f- have they found their bodies? And like, uh, does that make sense?
1: Yeah no, so I, um, I don't I mean, I guess the sites that I tend to study, they, we don't really get stomach contents. There's some later sites and, and sites that are in permafrost where you get such um, delicious and precious remains. Um, but we do get evidence from starch or other plant remains or other things, um, like residues from meat, et etc, that are trapped in the tartar on teeth from ancient skeletons. Um, And they had actually studied some from Shanidar Cave. There's some really well-known ones from um, Neanderthal and early modern human sites in Spain, for example, um, where they found a variety of different plants. Um, There was one site where um, Karen Hardy, who wrote the paper, argued that there was medicinal use of plants that was potentially for treating toothache or, or an abscess in the tooth um, so I, I'm not entirely sure when they figured out what is okay to eat and what is not okay to eat um, I think if I suspect it has very deep history because there's very deep history of cooking with fire um, what we just what we tend to lack especially if we need to rely on residues on stone tools is we cannot see something close to the finished food product which was the unique advantage of finding these carbonized lumps of even if they're tiny uh, of prepared foods because we can see combinations and some of the steps that are involved Um, but i suspect there was a lot of trial and error um, quite early on to to figure out what okay to eat and how to taste things and um i think today because we don't really do this as a full-time job because being a hunter-gatherer would have been the full-time occupation and and tradition of um quite a lot of those people um and even some of the hunter-gatherers that are around today are so much more knowledgeable than us in knowing and recognizing things to eat in the landscape and and to treat them in a way that makes them safe for consumption so i hope that makes sense
4: oh it does um i just want to ask you a follow-on question um so we know that children especially like some they start trying new things in environments and it's like really difficult for parents to make sure they don't pick stuff off the floor etc to eat um at some point was did like those children from the, in those environments that they go out and try stuff and they would then puke it out or they were they were more resilient? Um, like it. it I, I I know I'm asking you to hypothesize, but uh, what do you think about that? Like, the, you know, what do you like the child skeletons say? If that makes sense. Um,
1: I mean, so there's the problem is we don't have as many remains from the earlier sites as we do from the later sites. Um, but i think there must have been trial and error one thing we do see uh with the very late hunter gatherers and the earliest farmers is that there is greater investment it seems into preparing foods specifically for babies to wean them off mother's milk um, i've got a colleague of mine jess pearson who's written about this on um, based on the isotopic evidence from um, some of the younger and juvenile um and and older adults from earliest farming societies so i would suspect that they were i don't i mean yeah it is it's a bizarre thing is i suspect they would have tried various things both children and adults um but there must have been um some sort of knowledge of how to mitigate any nasty side effects and yeah but there, there must, I mean, we know that there is, there is a development as, especially, as I said, as um, people settle into more permanent occupations and take up farming to provide specifically food for babies and children, which is, um, bit, yeah, it's kind of cool.
4: Thank you so oh, much. Uh-huh. Sorry,
2: Rose, did I cut you off? I, I didn't want like to. Oh,
4: I just, I just said, thank you so much.
1: Well, I hope that made sense.
2: I think it's
1: yeah, great questions.
2: I have a follow up question to that. Um, When you said babies, I'm curious if if that does mean babies or if it means includes toddlers. Because even at this time, it's not common knowledge because people don't tend to do this um, in our culture in public. But the worldwide age of weaning is seven years old, which will really shock people. Unless you know, this is what your research. Yeah, no, I mean,
1: I totally mean, babe, like toddlers. Sorry. Oh no, no,
2: (laughs) I'm, I'm just, yeah,
1: just was. I tend to classify them as all babies. (laughs) um, Sorry. It's true. I always
2: feel like, um, yeah, my kids were babies until they were seven, (laughs) and then they're just bigger babies. But yeah, because it's it's important, and and um, I was also wondering if you meant that those those um. I don't know if you called it foods or some thing that, pe- that the pe- that the women were eating, was this to drive a milk supply or was this to dissuade or flavor the milk or was this for um, nutrition for, for I think the
1: children? It's just, yeah, I think it's, so there's some evidence that there's potentially some things being prepared for the children separately as well. Um, so my colleague Jessica Pearson has written about this based on the chemical signatures on on the bones, um, and and the shift she sees between um, toddlers, juveniles versus adult diet signatures. Um, so I'm I'm not entirely sure if there would have been. Um, it's a very interesting, yeah, insight as to whether it would be to prevent and and give a sort of unpleasant flavor to breast milk. Um, but I think there's definitely an attempt to replace it nutritionally as well, so that um, it doesn't, yeah, breast milk is not the only source.
2: Yeah, I will, I will look that up, because I think, again, in the culture, um, so I'll speak of in, in the U.S., that it's, I, I, I'm going to imagine that it's for nutrition because people don't recognize unless you're in a breastfeeding culture, all the benefits of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's, that's fascinating. And I, I can't wait I to think read it. it. Is,
1: yeah. I think it is nutrition. Um, so, but it's, it's interesting that it, it develops as, um, things are sort of, it's, it's almost like a, yeah, something we don't necessarily think about about life in the past that, you know, um, some of these practices and and nutritional practices and healthcare kind of insight would have been um that deep in the past i mean this is probably nine to ten thousand years ago so yeah
2: right because um you aren't having to worry so much about dehydration and nutrition Mm -hmm. and carrying something in your two arms besides a child just you know just for a few so it, it um it would seem that way. And also you had mentioned, I want to thank you for your, you had, I don't remember exactly how you mentioned it, but you meant you were talk discussing the food choices uh, as getting away from the idea that the early people were, um, or that the research or the people's food choices were based on caloric intake. And you, and you seem like your view is viewing those people as, as um, having feelings and thoughts and, and emotions that may have driven their food choices and so you're seeing them for their whole humanity and, and I think that this kind, of, this kind of awareness will really open up so much more information to us and you're, uh, when you were discussing about traditions that, well you said that something made it easier on the tummy Um, this is something I'm I'm curious if you can speak on that at all more I have for example I have wondered why do we how do those traditions evolve that or that wisdom and and where does it go I I learned of this from I have a friend who grew up in southern India and when um, he was teaching me how to cook some foods he said this you add you cook the beans and then we add Uh, cumin seeds for example because that helps with digestion now i'd never i didn't grow up cooking that way i grew up this tastes good or these flavors go well together but that there's a lot of wisdom like that and and so did did you see that was some is that something that you saw evidence of those kind of preferences
1: i mean so it's i guess um that there's a lot of stuff to unpack I think personally there so there's traditions that we can see for the use of certain plants that I think must relate to um, a cultural tradition so I guess within archaeology we're very happy to classify the way you make a pot or the may the way you make a stone tool as being part of um, learned culture and and I I guess because of the way I grew up, I tend to look at foods and plants that are used for food or other things as part of that similar kind of, of cultural arsenal, that it is something that you get to learn, um, you get to do certain ways, and then you might innovate, you might change things, you might try different things. But there's there's that knowledge as a baseline to to carry you, to choose plants, to cook them to prepare them and to feed them to yourself and to your um, family and I suspect because um, as your friend also says my mother always cooks eggs with cumin for precisely the same reason because it's supposed to help digestion Um, I'm not entirely sure if that is real or not but I do exactly the same way because it's a flavor I grew used to and I like it um so it's i think there's elements of of finding comfort in flavors that are familiar to us um and there's nothing necessarily wrong with seeking them and and to perpetuating them um but we also know for example from from i guess nutritional science and and investigations of plant chemicals that quite a lot of the plants that we rely on could have i guess beneficial side effects um there's, I've, I've always read with great interest work being done on studies of the microbiome, because I think the way we evaluate past diets, or even today, um, by looking simply at the number or amount of calories, is a slightly misplaced that we need to start looking at how diverse certain things were, what kind of diverse fibers were coming into the diet, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, I suspect there was a bit of both that there were flavors that they liked um, and there were things that were beneficial to them in digestion, in nutrition and um, and, and to, I mean, if you want to imagine a period of um, human existence where there were no other kinds of medicines or any other way of curing yourself and most of these things would have been plant-based. If you had a pain or you had discomfort, you would turn to plants and, and animals do this. So I don't see why early humans wouldn't. So, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Sorry, I rambled.
2: Not at all. So, um, you could go on and on. And I, I'm sure we would all, <clears throat> I'm eating. Was <laughs> we would all be so, so happy. and And also... That's that's something to think about too. Now we are separated from other animals. And and then in the period that you're talking about, I would think that that the early humans saw themselves as part of the whole picture. And so if you see a dog eating some grass, you know, and then the dog throws up and then maybe the human mm-hmm. would get that idea from that that dog, and not feel like that's that's your realm of existence, and over here is mine, and I take.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is separation from the animal world or the animated world is is potentially recent. There's been a lot of anthropological theorizing and debate on this, um, which it is an interesting area of research i've i've often thought about it but i don't dare to go into it that much so um and i suspect i mean i i know for a fact that even farmers today um have much greater understanding and observation of nature simply because they have to pay attention to it than many of us who are urban dwellers who don't necessarily have to go hang out with sheep or cows uh, thank you.
2: I, I want to pass the mic on but I before I do um <laughs> now you what you said about cumin that's what we put in beans. That's what my yeah. you know, my family does
1: and and um so I I never even
2: uh correlated the two so thank you. I will um
1: Yeah, no, I'll... we do it with eggs. Um my mom is is insistent that it helps with eggs. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it and now I I can remember I had a house wheat from <laughs> from Turkey, and he put cumin on, um, um, what is it, ayran, that drink? Oh
1: wow, okay, yeah. Yeah, he no, put I, it I on hadn't the... seen that one before, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, a, it's yogurt and salt and yeah, yeah. water, right? Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, so thank you. Um, I'll come back to you. Uh, welcome, Denise, and welcome, Lara and Katerina. I'm passing the mic to the next yep. lucky person. <laughs>
0: yeah please
5: uh, unmute and go ahead thank you um
1: I just lost you there for a
5: second uh this was a really interesting talk. I'm sorry, I missed it, but I was reading through the paper <laughs> okay. um and it's just very this along the silk road and uh-huh. Also, within contemporary cuisine, I feel like it's Victoria was mentioning in um, some Latin cultures, and so yeah. I was I was curious. I wanted to ask, is cumin? Would you say in modern cuisine?
1: Um, I lost your question there. Sorry.
5: How would you say?
1: Around the. Yeah, world you're at breaking this point, up in between. Sorry, I I just I couldn't hear any of the question. Denise,
2: I don't know if you can. Okay, fix, you
3: know, I'm um, just uh, I'm sorry. My,
1: you're breaking up a little.
5: Yeah, my uh my cell service.
2: This is great. Oh, now it's great. It's sorry. great. It's great.
1: Keep talk through it. It's good. It's been really
5: terrible. Yeah, talk now. Um, I'm just gonna pass the mic. <laughs> no, no,
1: bit. please, please, no, we want no, to no, Please it. try, try. I want to hear your question. Put, say it, or put it
2: in the chat, maybe. But try okay, again. Yeah, I'll put it in really, the chat. But go. We can hear you perfectly now.
5: Yeah, it works for 20 seconds at a time and then 10 seconds I oh, go I'm away. Okay.
4: Go, go, go.
5: <laughs> Speaking of corn, for example, it's a descendant of uh-huh. grasses. There's the uh-huh. coevolution, the selection. So it's very curious. Is cumin a grass type or?
1: Um, no, cumin is in the umbellifers. The so these are the, the relatives of um, things like fennel. Um, carrots, parsley, etc. Um, and I don't know exactly when they start. I know that it is in the later um, archaeological periods that people start to cultivate it and um, and carry it on as a spice. So it's got a deep history. It's just, it goes beyond my um, period of study. So I'm, I'm so sorry, I don't know precisely when. I suspect it's... Um, because I know the Romans were quite into quite a lot of the spices. They went everywhere with their preferred spices. So um, I can look it up if if you want to. If you're curious about cumin specifically, I, I mean, it was about. it was
5: just uh it was just uh, an interesting question. It's okay if you don't have the the answer. Oh, yeah, top no, sorry. Head. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't know that much about the the uh, the origin and and domestication of cumin, but I know if it's it's used for a very long time, a couple thousand years at least. So.
5: Isn't it interesting how liking certain foods can be because of the benefits that you can get from it? So cumin, for example, uh, you know, food cravings in pregnant females. Um, and it can actually indicate deficiencies in in um, nutrient levels and things of that nature. So isn't it interesting then?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that's... I know this is, um, this is one of the things I sorry, I've always um, read about and just thought certain flavors of plants must be important, not necessarily just because it is, um, it's is—it's just cuisine, but it might also signal something about our adaptation to different environments. Um, but there's, there's probably a lot of links that have to be made before we can build an argument around it. But yeah, as you point out, there's food cravings and specific craving-specific flavors must be important on some level.
5: Uh, at least in some cases in, in the, the pregnancy situation, it can indicate deficiencies. Um, I mean, I'm sure that I can't be the only person in here who really likes chocolate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's because it contains certain types of alkaloids that can mm-hmm. um, enhance mood. So...
1: Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. It's, I mean, this was one of the reasons why um, I, I wanted, so I had done a, a grant application where I wanted to investigate um, various phytochemical properties of plant foods that we find in Paleolithic sites to try and understand if there are specific pr- profiles of plants that are pre- preferred in special regions or, or time periods and whether we could track as you say, things that people um, seek, whether it is um, to meet deficiencies or to help with the digestion of all sorts of other stuff. Um, Because there's, yeah, if if you're eating a predominantly meat-heavy diet, but if most of this is coming from animals that don't have that much fat, and you have you need something to help you to digest all of this protein which is where all the fibers and various other plant chemicals come in so yeah no it's it's certainly um an interesting area just yeah mm.
5: i re- i really appreciated um all of the uh microscopy and and <laughs> the, you know all of the visuals this is a very nice part of it i was curious about the total um number of foods that you included in this study like you know there's like nuts and nutshells and I saw some some stuff about Mm -hmm. uh, earlier uh, lentils and Mm -hmm. pistachio and things of that how many total uh, species of food are we talking about
1: um so in the the one that got published in with the carbonized crusts, or are you we talking about other stuff?
5: I am referring to the presentation that uh, that's pinned to the top, but you can you can speak to the more specific one if that's easier.
1: No, no, it's. Let me see. Um, so, how many? I don't. I'm not sure because I think the one. So the one that I made a giant table of. Um, this is for multiple sites. So this is the one that was on page 21 with mm-hmm. all these other sites. Um, this is probably, so it's not all of them are sites that I've studied. Um, and it probably represents several tons of thousands of plant remains.
5: <laughs> yeah, I see uh, <laughs> oaks in here and junipers and yeah, other sorts of. Yeah. Wow. So
1: there's there's. I mean, these are the big types that are dominant that we find in these sites. Um, but for example, Ohala Two had, by itself, I think over twenty thousand carbonized plant remains um, and plenty more where it came from. Um, oh wow! So there's there's a lot of yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, if you're into it, I I certainly. Um, suggest searching them out and, and reading out the papers. I included links to quite a lot of the sites just in case people wanted to see the original publications. Um, but yes, the, there's a lot of data that, um, <laughs> just, yeah. And, and sites like Abu Huraira and Ohala 2, for example, um, are really very diverse. Um, they've got several hundred. Different plant species identified in them, so um, and we're still I'm I'm still working on um, at least the Baradostian levels from Shandar Cave to to finalize all the data. So it's um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it takes time. Sorry.
5: <laughs> of course it does. <laughs>
1: it's just a bit because you don't know what exactly i guess i have some examples like um on page 20 of what some of this stuff looks like um and i guess you can say some of them look like things that are recognizable to um to people but then you get a lot of broken bits and pieces, um, things that are fragmentary and things that require to be SEM individually to figure out what they are. Um, so yeah. Sounds
5: like a big puzzle.
1: It is. Yeah, it's kind of, um, you don't know what you're going to get and then you don't know if it's going to be worth the effort to study them. Um, but it keeps us busy, you know, <laughs> it's fun.
5: Thank you so much, Jedan. I want to pass the mic please. to um I'm glad to... you
1: got to ask the question. I'm I'm glad we figured out your
5: I'm glad I uh, finally <laughs> cooperated <laughs> a little bit too. <laughs> Passing the mic. All
1: right.
2: Hey, Laura, did you Hey you go. <laughs> Sorry, Katarina, I was going to invite you or Laura.
4: Yeah, hi. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Saran, for your presentation. I actually was um, in and out of hearing, so I missed a lot, but I was looking at the slides, and it's very interesting.
2: Um, I just have a basic question that you probably maybe covered. Um, how different, do we know how different the physiology of the, di- the human digestive system was, like, back at that point, like 60,000 years ago or more? And could that be, like, did they have less sense of taste or smell, is that why they were gravitating towards stronger, you know, stronger flavors, etc.? Thanks.
1: Well, it's something I don't know about. So, um, I, I mean, we know that there's differences in the um, the digestive systems. Um, and there's been some studies that was done on hunter-gatherer microbiomes from the Paleolithic that seems to suggest that they had quite diverse um, microbiomes that were specifically built on the wild plants. It was actually quite recently published. So, um, and I think it was nature. Not sure um but i'm not entirely sure if we know that much about the taste um but we know for example the development the mutation for the bitter taste detection is very early it is oh gosh i can't remember but a couple hundred thousand years ago so um they were able to taste quite a lot of the bitter flavor and some of the other things that are associated with similar mutations. Um, So I hope that answers the... Thank you.
2: Did you say that the ability to taste that bitterness did not show up until that time that you mentioned?
1: Oh yeah, no, I think, so there is a mutation that is associated with bitter taste um, that was identified to have developed by let me see it is the TAS2R gene family <clears throat> and it is quite early um they say probably 200 million years ago that it was um developed so i see so it
2: was early because i know that yeah,
1: that yeah, yeah. yeah sorry no no hmm. i sorry
2: it can indicate toxic plants (laughs) so so i would think that 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 would have been really sad so i I heard you completely
1: backward oh yeah no sorry i might have been rambling at the same time so um, not
2: at all no not at all no so that's that's really interesting so that there that was and that kept us safe i'm just thinking like cucumbers you know like when we taste (sighs) such a bitter cucumber and there are toxic cucumbers Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know the big round pointy kind um i know yeah
1: it's yeah. bad when i get one of those bad
2: ones mm-hmm. i get so, so in, sad yeah and you had mentioned caring about 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 the information that you're finding now mm-hmm. plants and how they were used how that might help us to to consider the same now and i so i think about you made me think of quinoa and how you know that. That became so popular because' it's, you know, it's high protein, it's delicious and it's super fast to cook. But that when we people outside of the regions of where you know um, Andean mountains and South America and that, um, now I had heard that it's really hard for those for indigenous people to keep up with their own supply because world demand and, and now people are trying to farm it who aren't relying on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think, similar problems with um, intensive farming of all sorts, um, especially with things that are water hungry, like almonds and, and soya, that um, it's a very complicated equation as to how to go about, um, I guess, thinking about the future. Um, I would like us to be able to, offer perspective and insight into how we're going to actually survive in the next couple hundred years at least Um, and whether we can learn lessons from the past but to be perfectly honest there are so many dynamics and so many um, issues to be mindful of And, and one of the things you point out is is yeah the indigenous farmers not necessarily being able to meet their own needs because of all this global demand. Hmm.
4: pressures of
2: capitalism. Go ahead, Rose.
4: I was just gonna ask, uh, could we have you found any new plant strains or strains that are no longer extant? And could we clone them as well as genetically engineer them into current plants? Like, uh, are there like, uh, have you heard about golden rice? Um, so, yeah. Okay. Um, I guess
1: most of what I study, especially even the ones that come from early farming sites, um, they even if they're not carbonized, there's so much DNA degradation that we can only get small fragments of DNA um, and then it has to be amplified. So it's quite hard It would be almost impossible i think to um reverse engineer something out of it we can sometimes see things that are not as commonly used anymore so there was um there was a gloom wheat that we knew was quite um heavily relied on in the neolithic across the near east and parts of europe and and elsewhere and even in north africa um that we were able to say is the closest relative to one of the lesser commonly cultivated ones today. Um, But yeah, I don't think that we'd be able to rejuvenate anything per se, unless it came from a very special kind of deposit. But even then it's, it's hard to, it's hard to argue if something is more beneficial because plants can be fairly invasive in some cases. Um, their introduction has to be done very carefully from an ecological perspective.
4: Yeah, um, are there any like anoxic sites or um, places where we could go and like try to find these seeds, etc.? cetera? Um, like I'm, I'm just thinking about the shipwreck that they found uh, which was Shackleton's uh, ship. And it was perfectly preserved because it has, uh, because of how cold it is, mm-hmm. as well as the specific environment, as well yeah. as the uh, thermocline and everything else, it is it is almost exactly the same as the day it sank, you know? So mm-hmm. um, could we find it buried in like places where the ocean has subsumed it or something else? I'm not else? sure. I
1: mean, there's, there's some sites where they get... Um preservation of especially the later historic and and later prehistoric materials in um like under permafrost and sometimes you get them in waterlogged environments which is essentially something that is preserved in a bog or a marsh or under seawater their lake water um but even then you might not always have viable seeds to grow it's it's a very narrow chance, I'd say. Oh, thank you,
0: um, Jake. Uh, uh, do you have time for more? One more question. I have no. Sure. sure. No, no problem. Hour. Thank you. Hey, Jake.
1: Please go Thanks.
5: ahead. Yeah, I was just curious if you uh, found anything that might be considered medicinal in your studies.
1: Um, I mean I I suppose there are some things that we suspect were medicinal Um, so not at this site but in in other sites that I've worked on we find um, relatives of wormwood so Artemisia that we know today various species of that genus are used in predominantly medicinal or digestive capacities Um, there's a few other things but it's, it's hard to be entirely certain. Um, as I said, there was one study done on um, DNA extraction from tartar that is preserved in the teeth of Neanderthals, which is just kind of mind-blowing that they actually did this. Um, where They had found, I think, evidence for willow bark, which they had said, was potentially used as a painkiller or um an anti-inflammatory a few other things that have been argued for um it's it's possible i I mean it depends on the preservation i personally haven't had something that had direct evidence of it
5: very interesting thanks
0: yeah thank you so much does anyone have another Question: A quick one, uh, before we close the room.
2: I just wanted to add to what your answer to Jake, Jaren, that um, mm-hmm. that could also be similar to the the blurred line between animate life. You know that that yeah, you know the Absolutely. lack of blurred line. it could be <laughs> yeah. the question of medicinal. What what would that mean? So it could you know we're talking about something that's used for digestion. Um, mm-hmm. Even you know this willow bark that that could have been something that was taken on maybe a regular basis because it sustained comfortable living. So maybe there you know I'm sure that there were things that are this is specific to that but but maybe it wasn't quite as distinct then as it is now because of the more organic means of living that people were living as they had evolved then I'm going to conjecture so it you know it wasn't quite as distinct this is meant for yeah, you know yeah. eat this from medicinal you know like eat this because it promotes mm-hmm. good health you know eat this because this is how we survive so it might yeah. be different then
1: no i think yeah so there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of side roads to go into and and how to precisely characterize it but i don't yeah i i, I agree what is consumed part of nutrition and what is consumed as a medicinal doesn't necessarily have to be separate things. They could have been um, done at the same time for similar reasons with similar stories told about them. Who knows?
0: Yeah, I think it's always so interesting. Like, you know, when you're not um, doing this type of work, um, that from these findings of seeds, you can kind of learn so much, you know, also about the lifestyle and other information from that data set. I, I, f- I find that so interesting and so <laughs> fascinating. We had like a metallurgy room uh, where they mm-hmm. found that metals in ancient China was way more... um. Complex, also than previously Mm -hmm. thought, and this then gave like insights to like how the structure was of society.
1: Mm -hmm. I think yeah, no, I mean yeah, they're all kind of. I mean, some things are interconnected for sure. Um. But yeah.
0: Yeah. So, Hmm. thank you so much for sharing this with us.
1: No. Thanks, you guys. You're making me think. I appreciate this.
0: And uh, yeah, I'm glad you appreciate it. And uh, we for sure do. And um, yeah, feel free to always come back.
1: Okay, yeah, um, no, I've, I'm gonna keep it on now and um, <laughs> see if I can make it to some of the talks or at least listen to the uploads um, when I can. Yeah,
0: well, thank you. And cool. maybe
1: And the timing is not bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead.
0: Uh, no, I was just saying maybe when you have some findings from your and you know work yeah. in Portugal <laughs> we'll
1: chat again.
0: We'll invite yeah.
1: you again. I mean I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna work on similar sites it's just that I will be based in Portugal um, mm-hmm. so I don't know if I'll start working on Paleolithic in the Iberian Peninsula that could be exciting who we'll, we'll see it takes time oh <laughs> it's yeah sure. slow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's 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 human studies. It's always more complicated, and but yes, yeah, yeah, it's so fascinating. Oh, and thank you,
1: thanks you guys. This maybe we'll fun.
0: come and visit you one
1: day. Yeah, you should.
0: <laughs> that would be fun. Wonderful. Thank you so much for spending the Saturday with us and yeah. uh, enjoy. You, it
1: was Have amazing. A... Oh yeah! Hi, <laughs> Kyle. Kyle. Hi. Did you have a question, or
3: no oh mine's a little off topic, but um That's okay. and, and it's uh it's kind of you know that people have will argue are always argue whether or not meat was um part of um um an ancient uh, diet i guess and mm-hmm. and so so I guess I was gonna ask about that if you found any like um you know bones um um anything that would show that these people were also eating meat by any chance
1: um so we it's not actually it's not off topic at all so um there is there's plenty of evidence that people consumed meat either from small mammals or larger animals um not necessarily limited to the site so they would have been proper omnivores, if that makes sense. Um, Not necessarily eating meat all the time, but there's other things. Um, There's some sites where we know that they were going after things like bone marrow, which has a lot of fat, um, blood or other things that are being harvested. And and just like we do today, I guess, um, in various societies. The debate often, especially when it comes to the later Paleolithic, Um, centers on whether these hunter-gatherers were eating mostly meat so like carnivores um, or they had greater amounts of plants contributing to their diets and even some of the earlier hunter-gatherers what kind of impact um, and and importance did plants have in their diets Um, so you'll read some of the literature that is based on chemical signatures from human skeletal remains that seems to indicate that some hunter-gatherers especially some neanderthals had pretty high contributions from animal meat to their diet um, Whereas some of the others were eating a lot more plants um, or had greater diversity so some meat some plants in essence it varies quite a lot um, just like it varies today, there's there's great diversity in prehistoric diets as well. Um, and trying to say that they would have had more meat or more plants is a bit, is a bit challenging, partly because of the kind of evidence that we get. Um, it's, it's hard to actually say this was the Paleolithic diet or this was the Neanderthal diet. Um, it's, I guess you need to kind of ask which area and which time period and which specific individuals because there are some sites where um, they've done isotopes on one individual who looks like they're eating a lot of meat and all the other individuals that are found in the same location look like they're eating a lot more plants so there's yeah complications galore in, in that Maybe uh, they had the same debate going on then than
4: now. (laughs) Hello? Sorry, I just want to say, maybe they said they had the same debate going on then as now.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, yeah.
3: Well, I I, I would hanker that the person that they thought was eating meat was bigger, stronger and more powerful um, than the rest and maybe um, yeah
1: maybe right? that's or, why they would have to, assumed that yeah. way yeah, a, yeah or maybe and, they had to run up and down a hill quite a lot i don't know i mean who knows that larger
2: example though um if we consider the gorilla
3: <laughs>
2: you know who's yeah, not but the not exactly is not a human
3: needier. but it's not human
2: no no but they are pretty large and
4: we're we're primates kyle we're all primates but but we just see rose that
3: that's actually an ad hominem um it's not the same if you were to look at at humans and primates uh you just that's that that would just be doing a scientific um uh, displeasure pretty much or uh, i'm gonna um, do it uh, you can't just (laughs) okay well thank you thank you kyle sorry thank you yeah, and I like that you brought up the location because uh, in the anthropology textbook that I I remember reading, um, it was uh, it was location that was pretty predominant um, ab- about the diets and whether or not people were uh, uh, taking part in cannibalism. Actually,
1: yeah, I mean, it's I don't know about cannibalism. It's it's kind of it's hard to to evaluate that evidence always, um, but for sure location mattered because we're. I mean, if if anything, I think most humans have been very successful at adapting to all these kinds of challenging environments um, and have developed dietary and culinary practices to actually allow us to survive. Um, and in the case of, of more meat consumption versus less, I think, I mean, we don't always see direct evidence of that contributing to body size difference um, or... It's hard to evaluate musculature anyway. Um, It may have been something else that contributed to that signal um, because we don't always get a diary from these prehistoric remains that says this is how much meat I ate. We see the signature that is left behind from absorption of the nutrients so there may have been complications to do with bioavailability of nutrients in that one individual. Um, there might have been digestive dif- differences between different groups. It's, there's all sorts of, I guess, the equation is not quite straightforward, sadly, for us to be able to interpret, if that makes sense.
3: Absolutely. Uh, one of the other things that came to my mind, actually, was um, they, they found um, evidence that uh, the people that were uh, building the pyramids were actually um, fed meat. Um, And that might have been for a reason because of all of the, um, Mm -hmm. and and basically, yeah, so I just, it's something because they, they wonder whether or not these were actually like a full on slave class of people, or if they were treated a little bit better because they were working so hard. And then if they were working so hard, was that why they were fed meat? um just something i thought i'd bring up just in case you haven't heard of it before but thank you so very much I know, my
1: pleasure um i mean i i didn't know about the the ancient egypt example um i'll be perfectly honest with you anything that goes past the neolithic i tend to just kind of say okay this is very late for me um <laughs> so <laughs> yeah anyway it's been fun thanks you guys um i really appreciate the discussion the questions and um, how informal you've allowed me to be
0: (laughs) oh yeah no it's been great fun
1: it's been fun yeah thank thank
0: you you so much and um yeah as i said good luck for the move i hope everything goes well and um then um yeah i uh, hope i hear you back one yeah. day or maybe we see you i am sure so we'll
1: much. keep in touch all right yeah let's um, keep in
0: touch enjoy yeah. the rest of your weekend happy holidays you too and um yeah everyone thank you for coming asking questions yeah
1: thanks for coming along and um, i see you're sending me hearts you're too cool thank you <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um yeah and we have uh one more room uh, before the end of the year, and it's on Monday. That's our uh-huh. last room this year for everyone. If you want to check it out, it's about a 3D uh camera, but that is lensless, that uh Dr. Young at UC Davis developed. And then we'll have uh, more talks again starting January fifth. So. Thank you everyone. Thank you, uh, Jiren. Uh, this was such a pleasure talking to you. And um, bye, everyone.
2: Bye. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, friends, for being here. Bye-bye. All
0: right, thank you. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.